Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast is sponsored by Avast. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Today's podcast is also sponsored by a brand new sponsor, Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. So go to athleticgreens.com Peter to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So go to athleticgreens.com Peter to take ownership of your health and to pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. We just finished a brutal week in the bond market. In fact, it was an outright bloodbath, and it's going to get a lot bloodier. And this is something that I have been talking about on my podcast. I've been tweeting about it on Twitter, and it seems that very few people in the financial community have had any appreciation for the risk in the bond market. I have been talking about the fact that people were underestimating not only how high bond yields were going to rise, but how quickly they were going to get there. And that is exactly what we're seeing now. This has got to be one of the worst weeks ever in the bond market. Probably the worst week that I can remember. In fact, I did read that we are on track for the worst quarter in the bond market since 1980. Now, 1980 was a very significant year because that was the year the 40-year bull market in bonds began. That bull market ended in 2020. So when it began in 1980, the prior bear market in bonds, which ended in 1980, ended with a blow-off bottom. And you had this huge sell-off in the bond market, a big capitulation, Everybody bailed out of bonds, and that marked the bottom, and that began the big bull market, which ended in 2020 after COVID when you saw that plunge in bond yields, and you saw yields below 1% on the long-term treasury bonds. And I remember at that time on this podcast, and anybody can go back and re-listen to those podcasts, but I pointed out that that looked like a blow-off top to the 40-year bull market. And I was very confident, and I declared so on my podcast, that the bull market in bonds was over and that a new bear market had begun. Well, what we're seeing now confirms the fact that we are now in a major secular bear market in bonds. And this has massive implications for investments, for the economy, because what powered the big bull market in stocks was the bull market in bonds. The fact that we were doing everything against a backdrop 
of ever-decreasing interest rates. That's what fueled the speculation. That's what kept the money cheap. That also fueled the real estate market. Everything was built on the foundation of falling bond yields, rising bond prices. Well, all that has changed. We're now in an environment where bond prices are going to keep falling and yields are going to keep rising. That is the environment we were in during the 1970s. And the types of investments that worked out during the bond bull market did not do well during the bond bear market. What did well during the bond bear market were commodities, natural resources, gold, foreign currencies, foreign stocks, emerging markets, exactly what is going to be doing well in the future. And many of these categories are already doing well right now. It's just that Wall Street is very reluctant to recognize what's changed. In fact, most people who are on Wall Street now, working there for a living, were not around over 40 years ago. They have no understanding of an environment where interest rates are not rising. They've never operated in anything but a bond bull market. Well, they are in for a rude awakening because this bond bear is just getting started and it's gonna be brutal. It's gonna be worse than the bear market of the 70s because the financial circumstances of the United States are far worse now than they were then and the prospects for inflation are far worse and inflation is the biggest enemy of bonds because remember what bonds are. Bonds are an obligation of a borrower to repay a lender a fixed interest rate over a period of time and then at the end of that period, at the maturity, the borrower repays the lender the principal. Well, what erodes away the value of the interest payments? What erodes away the value of the principal? It's inflation. But also, as inflation rises, it pushes bond yields higher. That means bond prices fall. So if you're a bond holder and you don't want to wait till maturity, you want to get your money now and you go to sell, as rates are rising, the price that you can sell your bond at is falling and you start to lose money. In fact, year to date, the Bloomberg Global Bond Index is down 6.6% this year and in fact it's off 11 percent from its high in early january because we initially got a bit of a rally in bonds but some people might think well 6.6 percent that's not that big a deal well first of all you're talking about one quarter so annualized 6.6 percent that becomes a big number but you have to keep in mind that when it comes to bonds losing 6.6 percent in a quarter is a big loss. This is not the stock market because you have to keep the losses in perspective to what the potential profits were. If somebody bought bonds early this year, what was their expectation? Well, if you bought bonds because you wanted a 2% yield, well, you've already lost more than triple what you were hoping to gain for an entire year of owning that bond, except you lost it in one quarter. And also remember that bond investors are supposed to be risk adverse. They're supposed to be buying bonds because they want a safe haven. They want to have a portion of their portfolio that's lower risk. Well, they're getting clobbered in what they thought was low risk. And there's a lot more downside left in the bond market from here. We are just getting started because the yields are still ridiculously low, as I have been commenting. Let's take a look at the bond yield. So the yield on a two-year treasury is 2.27%. What is the official inflation rate? It is 8%. So you're talking about approximately negative 6% yield on a two-year. What's so enticing about that? Why would anybody want to buy a two-year treasury when inflation is so high? Even if inflation comes down, it's not coming down that much over the next two years. Even if the Fed is successful in its inflation fight, which it won't be, you are guaranteed to lose purchasing power if you are dumb enough to buy a two-year treasury. Now, the only thing dumber than buying a two-year treasury is buying treasuries of a longer maturity. Look at the five-year treasury. The yield there is 2.55%. I mean, why go out five years 
for an extra, what, 30 basis points? Take three more years of inflation risk? Makes no sense. Of course, what makes even less sense than a five-year treasury is a 10-year treasury. The 10-year treasury is 2.4%. It's lower than the five-year treasury. You get a higher yield taking less risk by buying a five-year treasury than you would get by buying a 10-year treasury at 2.47%. Now, why is that? Why is the yield curve inverted between the fives and the tens? And the reason is because the bond market is correct when it sniffs the stench of recession. The bond market knows that if the Fed keeps raising rates, we are going to have a recession. And the bond market expects the next recession to look like the last one where the Fed will immediately start cutting rates. And so future rate cuts are now being built into the yield curve. In fact, according to the data, bond investors are actually pricing in about two rate cuts next year, 225 basis point cuts sometime in 2023. So in other words, the Fed is gonna continue to raise interest rates this year, maybe keep raising them early next year, and then all of a sudden the Fed's gonna notice that the economy is in a recession and it's gonna start cutting rates. Now, what the bond market also believes is that the recession is going to take care of inflation. That even if the rate hikes don't do it on their own, surely a US economy in recession will put out the inflation fire. And that is the bet the bond market is making. In fact, I was reading an article in the New York Times yesterday, and that's exactly the point the Times was making. They said, we don't have to worry about inflation. The bond market is telling us that the inflation problem is transitory and it's gonna go away. Well, the bond market is wrong because the bond market simply reflects the views of the people who are in the market buying bonds. They are wrong to think that recession is going to do something about inflation. Now, they're just conditioned to believe that because over the past several cycles, that has been the case, but they don't understand that that time period is over. We are in a rising inflation environment, just like we're in a rising interest rate environment because we're in a bear market in bonds. We are in a bull market in inflation. Inflation is going to keep going up. So even if the bond market is correct on forecasting a recession, and I believe they are correct, they are incorrect to believe that the recession is going to get rid of the inflation. Inflation is still going to be high at the point the economy slips into recession. In fact, it may even be worse. Inflation could be worse when we enter recession because one of the main reasons that we're going to be in a recession is going to be because of inflation. It's going to be because consumer prices are rising and that is going to have an effect on real consumer spending. Yes, consumers are going to spend more, but they're going to buy less and the economy is going to end up in recession as a result of inflation. And therefore, people on the bond market who simply assume that recession means we're going to get rate cuts, they're wrong. And if they assume that those rate cuts are going to be bullish for bonds, they're wrong. Basically, no matter what the Fed does, bond investors are going to get killed. Because let's say we do enter recession the way the bond investors believe, but we have high inflation. And the Fed says, you know what? We're in a recession, but we have to fight inflation. That's more important. So we're going to keep raising rates, even though we're in recession. Well, now the bond investors are not going to get the rate relief that they expected. And so instead of rates going down because we're in recession, they keep going up because we have inflation too. We're in stagflation. And so bond prices fall. So the bond curve is wrong Investors are wrong because they think recession means lower rates and they're pricing that into the yield curve. But if inflation is higher and the Fed continues to fight it, then recession doesn't mean lower yields. Yields keep going up anyway. And so bond investors lose because rising rates means bond prices go down. Alternatively, if the Federal Reserve does pivot and responds to the recession by cutting rates, even though 
inflation is still high, then it's going to get much higher, in which case bond investors lose to inflation because the value of their bonds, the principal, erodes even faster because the Fed cuts rates to stimulate the economy despite the fact that the inflation problem hasn't been solved and so it exacerbates that problem. And as I said, the biggest risk for bondholders is inflation. So regardless of what the Fed does, whether it pivots or continues to fight inflation, bond investors lose. And the biggest losers of them all are gonna be those holding the longest dated maturities. And that's because they're gonna have to wait longer to get their principal back. And so more of that principal will be eroded away by inflation. And then if they want to sell their bonds early because they don't wanna wait so long to get their money back as they don't want to watch it evaporate, then they're going to have to sell at a bigger loss because as interest rates go up, the longer the maturity, the bigger the drop if you want to get out early because after all, the person who is buying your bond is now stuck in the same position that you are in and that you're trying to get out of. They have to hold on to a low yielding bond in a high inflation environment. And so they're going to pay a lot less for the bond because they have to wait longer to get their money back. And they know as well as you do that when they get their money back, it's going to be worth a lot less than it is today. And so those losses have to be factored in to the current bond price because that's the only way to have a real market. So you have to accept that loss even if you don't hold to maturity because you're trying to pass the hot potato to somebody else and that somebody else doesn't want to get burned and so they buy it at a big discount which brings me to the current yield on the 30-year treasury which closed the week at two spot five eight percent think about that the yield on the five year is two spot five five you're only getting an extra three basis points in yield by taking another 25 years of risk Why would anybody buy a 30-year treasury at 2.58 when they can take a five-year at 2.55? All you get is an extra 0.3 in yield for the first five years, and then you're betting that five years from now, if you want to buy treasuries again, you think the yields are going to be lower than 2.58, so you want to lock those tasty yields in for 30 years. Why anybody would think that five years from now, the yields will be lower than they are now is beyond me, given what's happening with inflation, given the fact that we're now in a bear market in bonds and not a bull market in bonds. But even again, if you look at the inflation expectations over the next 30 years that are implied in the tip spread, and that again is the difference between what investors are willing to pay for treasury protected bonds, which are tied to the CPI versus what they're willing to pay for regular treasuries, the implied break-even is 2.54%. So investors believe that inflation is going to average just over 2.5% for the next 30 years, which means five years from now, it would be about 2.5%. So why should yields on 30-year treasuries be basically 2.5% when that is what investors expect inflation to be. Nobody is lending money to break even. People have savings and they want to lend it out for a positive return. Why would you lock up your money for 30 years to get no return? Because even if you're correct and inflation is exactly what you expect it to be, you end up making nothing. Well, why would you want to make nothing for one year, let alone 30 years, There are a lot of other alternatives out there for your money. And in fact, just spend it. I mean, why wait 30 years to spend your money when you can spend it right now and enjoy it right now? The reason to defer consumption and to save and buy in the future is because you'll have the benefit of the interest rates that have been compounding. So you'll be able to buy more in the future if you hold off on consumption. If you just delay your gratification, save your money, make a loan, earn the interest, you'll be able to consume more later by waiting. But if you can't consume more by waiting, if all you can consume is the same amount, then why wait? Because people would prefer something today than something in the future. Now, if you get more in the future, well, then maybe you'll prefer that. But 
you're not going to prefer the same, but what about the risk of getting less? Because here is the real problem. Investors expect inflation to be 2.5%. They're wrong. It's going to be much higher than 2.5%. And if it is much higher, the losses are enormous. On the other hand, if it ends up being lower than 2.5%, there's not much upside. So in other words, the downside risk of buying bonds, if inflation ends up being over 2.5% is far greater than your upside benefit if it turns out that inflation is lower than 2.5% and that you made some kind of shrewd move by locking in these tasty 2.5% rates. The risk-reward is just not there, which is why nobody is going to buy these bonds, which is why the prices are going to keep collapsing. That is the point that I've been making. Looking at the chart of bonds or the chart of yields, which is the reverse of the chart of bonds, there is nothing to stop yields from soaring. There's nothing to stop prices from plunging. And the fundamentals completely align with the technicals. And so I think it's a race to get out of the bond market. The bond market is going to continue to get killed. And one of the reasons it is getting killed is because the stock market isn't going down. The only thing that might stop a bond market crash would be a stock market crash because the stock market crash will cause the Fed to rethink its rate hikes and that will temporarily help the bond market. Now, permanently, nothing's going to help this bond market because if the Federal Reserve responds to a stock market crash, which may be caused by a bond market crash by halting the rate hikes or going back to QE, then we make the inflation problem worse, which makes the real problem for bonds even worse. So there's no way that the Fed can save the bond market by saving the stock market, except bond investors don't know that because they expect to get the same type of reaction that we had when there was no inflation and when bonds were in a bull market as we're going to get when there's lots of inflation and bonds are in a bear market. The other big difference, too, in the bond market is that the Federal Reserve was a major factor in artificially suppressing bond yields because the Federal Reserve was doing all this quantitative easing. Well, at the moment, the Fed has supposedly stopped doing quantitative easing and is about to launch quantitative tightening. And people are now talking about the fact that the balance sheet runoff is going to have to be quicker than it was last time. And of course, last time it operated at a snail's pace. Remember, it was supposed to be like watching paint dry. Well, now we're going to have to dry the paint a lot faster because we have a far bigger balance sheet to shrink than the one we had before. So if the Federal Reserve is not buying treasuries and is effectively selling treasuries, then the only buyers are going to be private buyers. Now, some people think, well, maybe we'll get foreign central banks to buy this crap, but why would they want it? Especially now with what's going on with Russia and Ukraine and the sanctions and the fact that we're scaring the daylights out of a lot of foreign nations that we would hope would buy our U.S. treasuries. In fact, a lot of those nations are probably thinking about selling the treasuries they already own rather than buying more, especially since the bull market is over and now we have a bear market. Well, why ride it out? Just get rid of your treasuries. And that's particularly going to be the case when the U.S. dollar finally starts to fall. Because one of the few reasons to own U.S. treasuries if you're overseas is if you expect the dollar's gains to offset some of your losses in the bond market. But once the dollar really turns around and starts to fall, then the dollar's declines are going to exacerbate the losses on your bonds. Because not only will you be losing as the price of the bonds go down, but you'll be losing because the exchange rate goes down. The dollars are worth less relative to whatever your local currency is, and that's going to fuel the desire of foreigners to divest of U.S. treasuries. So if foreign central banks aren't buying, if the Fed isn't buying, who the hell is going to buy? Private investors aren't going to buy, not at these ridiculously low rates, which is why rates have to go up, but they have to go up quickly. They will reset quickly. Markets can react very quickly and reprice very quickly when circumstances have changed. I mean, look at how stocks react. Come out with a bad earnings report and a stock crashes because now the market has to reprice that stock based on a different outlook for earnings. And the repricing happens quickly because the investors get this new information. Traffic jams, tailgating, 
pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Well, if all of a sudden investors have to reprice bonds because they've been mispriced for all these years, and now they have to be priced to reflect reality, not the fantasy that bondholders used to imagine, well, the repricing happens quickly. And that is exactly what's happening right now in the bond market. But so far, the stock market has been complacent and it hasn't gone down, but it is living on borrowed time. We are getting closer and closer to a major stock market decline. And in fact, the longer It takes for the stock market to begin that huge decline, the higher interest rates are going to go in the interim, which means the more likely it is that the decline becomes a crash. Avast empowers you with digital safety and privacy, no matter who you are, where you are, or how you connect. Enjoy the opportunities that come with being connected all on your terms. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. You can learn more about Avast One at avast.com, including an award-winning antivirus that stops viruses and malware from harming your devices, data breach monitoring, that enables you to find out if your online accounts have been compromised and whether your passwords need to be changed and firewall protection that keeps your personal information secure and prevents attacks that seek to access your computer or steal your data. In fact, I've been successfully securing my data for years as a satisfied Advanced customer. Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month. And with Avast One, you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, or other cyber crimes. You can learn more about Avast One at avast.com. In fact, if you look at where the stock markets are, pretty much all the indexes, save the Russell 2000, were positive on the week completely shrugging off the carnage in the bond market. And the S&P is only down 4.7% from its record high. I mean, that's barely a decline given how much bonds are down. In fact, bonds are down more than stocks percentage-wise, even though bond investors had lower upside in anticipation of owning bonds, they ended up losing more money. So people who wanted to play it safe and buy bonds have lost more money than the people who wanted to take a risk and buy stocks, which is why I have been saying all along that there is no safety in bonds, that bonds are return-free risk, that they're the riskiest asset that most investors could buy. And if it was my choice, if I had to put all my money in U.S. bonds or all my money in U.S. stocks, I would pick U.S. stocks. Fortunately, those aren't my choices. It's a big world out there, and I don't have to choose between the lesser of two evils. I can actually invest in something good. By the way, the Russell 2000, which did have a down week, is down 7.5% from its high. The Dow is only down 4%, so that's the strongest of the indexes. The weakest is the NASDAQ. It's down 9.7%. But remember, that index officially moved into bear market territory a few weeks ago. It was down about 22%. The Russell 2000 was also down more than 20%. So we've had pretty big rallies off the lows. And those rallies occurred against the backdrop of this huge collapse in bonds. In fact, the one index that did react appropriately to rising interest rates in the stock market were the home builders. The index of home builders, HXB is the symbol for this ETF, dropped by 9% on the week. That is a big decline, and that index is now down 24% from its high. So it is decisively in a bear market, and it is headed a lot lower. Because I mentioned it on the last podcast, I can't imagine a worse environment for home builders because not only is the cost of building homes skyrocketing, literally skyrocketing, materials and labor, but then 
the cost to your customer, the home buyer of taking out a mortgage to buy your home that you're building is also skyrocketing. So it's a double whammy that is destroying the business. In fact, as bonds were getting clobbered, mortgage rates were also soaring. I read that this was the worst week for the mortgage market since the 2013 taper tantrum. I think yields on a 30-year fixed were up about a half a percent on the week, 1% on the month. In fact, a year ago today, and that's pretty much about where they were when 2021 ended, but a year ago, the yield on a 30-year fixed rate mortgage was 3.3%. That was the national average. As of Friday, the national average is now 4.95%. So we're almost talking about 5% mortgages in the United States. Now, I remember when 5% was cheap. I remember the first time I saw mortgages go below 5% on the way down, thinking, oh my God, this is really cheap money. Well, things have really changed. And what used to be cheap money is now very expensive money in a world where people have gotten used to mortgages in the threes. We're about to have a five handle on mortgages. And this is a big deal, especially when you consider the fact that not only is the cost to finance a house going up, the price of the house you're financing is also going up. For example, let's say there was a house that was $500,000 a year ago when the mortgage rates were 3.3%. Assuming you can swing 10% down, which is 50,000, and a lot of home buyers can't even come up with a 10% down payment, let alone you know the 20% that would be more traditional. But let's say you put 10% down, you took out a $450,000 mortgage, your monthly payment at 3.3% would be $1,970.80. Now, let's say that house today is 20% more expensive, which is about the appreciation, and say the house is 600 grand, and let's say you put the same 50,000 down, which wouldn't even be 10%, it would be 8.3, but I wanna keep the down payments the same. Let's look at the mortgage now. You're taking on a much bigger mortgage because the house was more expensive, but now you've gotta finance that mortgage at 4.95%, your monthly payment now is $2,935.73. That's an increase of 49%. Now that doesn't count uh, your property taxes that have gone up or your insurance that has gone up or anything else. I'm just looking solely at the interest rate and nothing else. And you've got a 49% increase in the cost to buy the same home in one year. Now, that to me is more reflective of what's happening in housing than owner's equivalent rent, which is up about 4.5%. That's supposed to be a proxy for what it costs to buy a house, the owner's equivalent rent. Well, actual costs to buy a house are up 10 times as much as what the government claims is happening with housing. Imagine if you stuck that 49% number into the CPI and put it as a 33% weighting. Imagine where inflation would be. Now, I don't think that would be the appropriate number, but probably more appropriate than owners of COVID rent. But that lets you know what is happening to costs and how many Americans can still buy houses when the cost of buying them has increased by 50% in a year. And again, it's not just the cost of buying it. Now you got to maintain it. Now you got to pay all the costs associated with maintaining a home and all those costs from utilities to repairs to taxes and insurance, they're also skyrocketing. People have measly increases in their wages that President Biden is bragging about while completely ignoring the huge increase in the cost of living. But you know what? It's going to get worse because there's no reason for mortgage rates to stop at 5%. Inflation is 8%. What idiot is going to loan somebody money for 30 years at 5% when inflation is 8%. Now, yes, I get it. People think that inflation is gonna come down. They're wrong. I mean, most people never thought it was gonna go up in the first place. They were wrong then, and they're wrong now. What happens when mortgage rates hit 6%, which they clearly will? I mean, they could hit 6% within the next month or two, who knows? What happens then? Well, assuming the price of the house stops going up, let's just say that house stays at 600,000 and all the appreciation stops, 
which I don't think is going to happen. I actually think home prices are going to continue to rise because remember, as long as mortgage rates are well below the inflation rate, it pays to buy a home and take out a mortgage, especially when you consider the fact that the mortgage payments are tax deductible. So the effective interest rate is a lot lower when you incorporate the tax savings. And so there is a powerful incentive to buy a home. Now, what I think is going to happen is people are going to buy existing homes. They're not going to buy the new homes because the new homes are so expensive. They are unaffordable, but the existing homes will be the only option for most people. And so existing home prices could keep going up. I don't think they'll go up as much as the replacement costs, meaning the cost to rebuild the house will be going up faster than the market value of the house itself. But the market value of the house is still going to rise to reflect the fact that rebuilding it would be so much more expensive because when you own the house, you already own all the material that was needed to build the house and you already paid for all the labor to put that material together. So that value is going to be incorporated into a house. Let's say you have a house right now that is $500,000 that would cost a million dollars to build. Well, no one's going to build it because no one could afford it, but that might mean your $500,000 house goes up to $600,000 or $700,000. It's still way below what a new house would cost, but the new house isn't being built because people can't afford it. All they can afford is your used house. Now, eventually rates will rise so much that we're going to see even existing home prices fall. But in the short run, I would expect existing home prices to continue to rise, but new home construction to grind to a halt. And it's also that reduction in supply and that reduction in competition because it means that if you want to buy a home, the new homes aren't there. So the only way to get one is to convince somebody who already owns one to sell it to you. And if people don't want to sell their homes, well, then you've got to entice them into doing it by paying higher prices. But assuming that $600,000 home stays there and you have a 6% mortgage now, now you're looking at a $3,000 two hundred and ninety seven dollar and sixty three cent payment that's a 67 percent increase over where it was a year ago and if mortgage rates go to eight percent which again historically is not that high i mean six to eight percent is pretty much what had been the norm for a long time i mean yeah there were periods in the 80s where mortgages were above 10 percent 12 percent 14 percent but six to eight percent was kind of the range before we collapsed in the Greenspan era of cheap money and all that in QE. But if rates got back to 8%, now you're talking about $4,035.71 mortgage payment. That's 105% greater than a year ago when the rates were 3.3. So it's more than double. How many Americans will have seen a doubling in their income so they can afford to pay twice as much to buy the identical home? Obviously, they can't. This is a huge decline in the American standard of living. And you can already see this in the housing data. We got the pending home sales numbers that came out on Friday. They were looking for a rebound from the sharp 5.7% decline in January. Well, they actually revised that decline to an even sharper 5.8% decline. But instead of rebounding by 0.9% in February, we dropped by another 4.1%. Completely blown away any of the expectations. The range was from minus 3 to plus 1.5, and we came in at minus 4.1, and the index dropped from 109.5 the prior month to 104.9. They were expecting a slight decline to 109.4. Instead, we had a sharp decline to 104.9. And this is also what is weighing on the home building stocks, which as I said, we're down 9% on the week. They have a lot further to go on the downside. And rising home prices, among other prices that are going up, is also responsible for the weak consumer sentiment number that was also released on Friday. We got the final number for March. The preliminary number was 59.7, and the final number ratcheted that down a couple of notches to 59.4. Consumer sentiment is deteriorating, and why are consumers less confident? What's making them gloomy? Obviously, it's rising prices. 
everything that consumers want to consume is getting a lot more expensive. Yes, some of them are earning more money, but the cost of living is rising much faster than their incomes. And of course, there are a lot of people who aren't earning any more money. There are people who are earning the same amount of money, yet their cost of living is soaring. And this is why consumers are so gloomy. But the reality is they would be even gloomier if they knew how much worse inflation is going to get. I mean, they're still not as dumb as the investors. If you look at the long-term inflation expectations of consumers, they expect 3% inflation. Bond investors only expect 2.5% inflation. Consumers are closer to being right. But both of them are way under. The actual rate of inflation that investors and consumers are going to be confronting is going to be much higher than the 3% that consumers expect. And as consumer expectations start to more accurately reflect what's actually going to happen, these sentiment numbers are going to plunge. And the same thing in the bond market. As bond investors realize that inflation is actually going to be much worse than they think, well, then bond prices are going to plunge too. And the entire economy is going to plunge into recession. And then we're going to find out what the Fed does. Does the Fed continue to slam on the brakes to fight inflation Or does it switch to the gas pedal, ignoring inflation, to try to pump up the economy? But either way, as I said, bond investors are going to get killed because the dollar is going to get killed and inflation is going to destroy the value of those bonds. I want to introduce my audience to a new nutritional product that I've been taking every day since I first got it. Everybody knows I just turned 59 the other day, which means I'm getting closer and closer to the big 6-0. I want to do everything I can to stay as healthy as possible and to try to hold father time at bay. And with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients helps support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, energy, recovery, focus, and aging. And now, Athletic Greens is offering my listeners a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase when you go to athleticgreens.com peter. I've made it part of my morning ritual. I drink a glass every day before breakfast. Athletic Greens pretty much works with every diet lifestyle, whether you're eating keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or anything else, yet still maintains a great taste. And in fact, with every purchase, Athletic Greens donates to charitable organizations that are helping to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry, right here in the USA. In fact, Athletic Greens donated over 1.2 million meals to kids in 2020 alone. And right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with a convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it even easier, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com Peter. Again, that's athleticgreens.com Peter to take ownership of your health and to pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. In fact, we got more evidence of the inflationary pressures on prices in the oil market, which had another strong week. Oil prices up 10.5% on the week. We settled at $114.90 a barrel. That is the second highest close of this move, the highest being three weeks ago at $115.68. It seems pretty likely that we will take that close out Next week, I think we probably will close above $120 a barrel for oil. And this despite the fact that the U.S. dollar index rose on the week. It went from about 98.2 to 98.8. Remember, oil is priced in dollars. And if the dollar was falling, which is something that should be happening and will be happening, that will put even more upward pressure on prices. And by the way, Russia is now demanding to be paid rubles for its oil 
And there is some rumors floating around now about Saudi Arabia moving away from pricing their oil in dollars for reasons that I have been warning about, looking to price in other currency, maybe the Chinese RMB, or more likely maybe even fixing the price of oil to gold and demanding real money gold in exchange for their oil because that's exactly what we used to pay Saudi Arabia for its oil prior to 1971 when the US dollar was backed by gold when we were paying $3 a barrel for oil we were actually paying in gold now that we're paying $114 a barrel, we're paying in paper. And if we're forced to pay in gold again, it's going to be a lot more expensive. But getting back to the markets again, one fact that I want to continue to point out is it still is obvious to me that beneath the surface of this stock market rise, as short-lived it will likely prove to be, you can still see the rotation going on. It's not as obvious as it was pre the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but you can still see the value-oriented stocks, the dividend-oriented stocks holding up. But this trend is going to accelerate once you really start to see the momentum stocks roll over again and hit new lows and more money is being pulled out of that sector of the market and is looking for a home. Because again, you can't look at the bond market. There's no safety there. There's no yield there. So if you're looking for an alternative to overprice U.S. stocks and overprice U.S. bonds and you don't want to lose money, where are you going to invest? International is the best place to go. Value, dividend payers, natural resources, commodities, that's where the money is flowing. In fact, if you look again at my mutual funds, my dividend payer fund is up almost 9% on the year. Pretty much the mirror image of the NASDAQ composite, which is down 9.7% on the year. I think the exact gain for the dividend payers fund looks like 8.9%. My value fund, not that far behind, up 8.6%. But now, thanks to the rally we're having in gold stocks, which is not nearly as big as it should be, nor nearly as big as it will be, I believe, once investors start to discover this. But the gold fund is up 15% on the year. So when you see gold stocks outperforming tech stocks, you know that something has changed. The problem for most investors is they're oblivious to this change. They don't recognize it because they're so wedded to the old buy the dip mentality that they don't even realize what's changed. They don't realize how much different the investment environment is now than it was in the past because they've never operated in any environment other than what we had in the past. And so they're very reluctant to acknowledge that it's different. But that reluctancy is going to ultimately give way as the returns really start to compound in another strategy. So as investors lose more and more money chasing momentum that's no longer there and they forego all these gains in value and dividend paying stocks, eventually they're going to be pushed to move in that direction. And if they don't do it voluntarily, they're going to be pushed from their clients because people are going to start withdrawing money from all these momentum investors and they're going to be sending it to value investors. They're going to be taking money out of domestic managers and sending it to international managers. Just like during the mania, so many value-oriented money managers threw in the towel, closed up shop, and went out of business because investors didn't want to invest there because they couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. They didn't realize what was going to happen. They were investing looking in the rearview mirror rather than looking through the windshield that they even understood what they were looking at. Well, that's going to happen in reverse. The momentum managers like Kathy Wood, who was the talk of the town, everybody wanted to send money to her because she was a genius. Well, everybody's going to realize that she wasn't so smart. And even if she doesn't realize it herself, her investors will, and they're going to be pulling money away from her, forcing her to sell these stocks, even though she doesn't want to. And where is this money going to go? It's going to go to other managers like me who are pursuing a different strategy, who are not wedded to something that only worked during a bubble, who understood the nature of that bubble and recognize that the air is coming out and that there's a lot more left to come out. And we have a different strategy. In fact, I saw this thing coming so far in advance that a lot of people still don't even want to give me credit 
for predicting it. In fact, on my last podcast, I noticed that somebody mentioned that they had watched a speech that I gave years ago back in 2015 before the election. So Donald Trump hadn't been elected yet. And I was talking about how inflation was going to flare up and how the government was going to initially claim it was transitory, although I used the word transient, although transient, transitory, it's six of one, half dozen of the other. It's the same word. But I described back in 2015 what I thought was going to happen maybe as soon as 2016, although I didn't put a time limit on it, but I knew it was coming. Well, it happened in 2021 exactly the way I said it would, except it happened a little later than I thought it would, but it is happening. Everything that I believed was ultimately going to happen with the Fed, with inflation, with interest rates, it's all happening. And just because I saw it early doesn't mean I didn't understand it. It was because I understood it so well that I saw it so early. I'm not a stop clock because I've been warning about this for years. The stop clocks are all the other people who have not been warning, who said everything was great. Those are the stop clocks, and their clocks are still stopped. They are still talking about how everything is good, everything is under control, there's nothing to worry about. Yes, inflation is higher than we thought it's going to be, but don't worry, the Fed is on the job, and these rate hikes, you know, they're going to get rid of the inflation. They don't understand that this is not going to work, because they don't understand the nature of the problem. If they did, they would have been on my side back in 2015. They would have been sounding the warning alarm because they would have seen the problem coming back then. The fact that they didn't see it coming back then means they don't understand it right now. And in fact, I'm going to repost that speech just so more people get a chance to see it. And of course, that wasn't the only one that I gave. I was going around the country talking about the risk of inflation and what was going to happen when it finally reared its ugly head because I knew that was inevitable. But I also knew that when the inflation problem finally arrived, the Fed would be powerless to do anything about it. So I knew that it would have to lie about it. It would have to rationalize it, excuse it, come up with ways to dismiss it. And that's exactly what they've done. And of course, one of the newest excuses that they have now to blame inflation on is Russia invading the Ukraine, which is one of the reasons that I don't believe that that crisis is going to end anytime soon, unfortunately, because it serves a purpose here in Washington. It provides a very convenient scapegoat, and that is exactly what the Biden administration needs. It has to blame inflation on something. It has to blame the problems in the economy on something, and so it's going to blame it on Russia and the Ukraine. And that, I think, is also why they want to increase the significance of this battle and draw such a sharp contrast between Ukraine and Russia, and which I think is why you had such a visceral reaction to my tweet about Zelensky's T-shirt, because the way this is being framed, it's very black and white. Right. Russia, evil, Ukraine, good. Right. Russia is the evil empire. It's like the new Nazi Germany. And the Ukraine is like some bastion of free market capitalism. Putin is the reincarnation of Adolf Hitler. And Zelensky is a modern day George Washington. Now, these extremes are not justified. And let me make it clear. I'm not a Putin fan. I'm not saying Putin is a good guy. No, Putin's definitely bad, but he's no Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler is very rare. Putin is not even close to Hitler. He's not even close to Stalin. And you could argue who was worse, Stalin or Hitler. They're both pretty bad, but Putin is not in that camp. And he is not trying to recreate the Soviet Union. That is not going to happen. On the other side of the spectrum, the Ukraine is not some paradise of freedom in Europe. In fact, every time I hear President Biden or other people talk about the Ukrainians 
who are fighting heroically, he calls them freedom fighters. They're fighting for freedom. I don't think that they're actually fighting for freedom. I mean, I think they're fighting for their sovereignty and their independence, and they have a lot of valid reasons for fighting. And I don't want to take any of that away from them. And I think that's why they may end up prevailing in this conflict, because the morale of the Ukrainian troops is much greater than for the Russians. I mean, the Russians have no idea why they're fighting. Most of the Russians probably would prefer not to fight. Clearly, the Ukrainians know exactly what they're fighting for. They want their own independence. They don't want to be ruled from Moscow. They want to be their own country. And they're fighting. And they were attacked. They're on the defensive. They're a lot more motivated. And morale is a lot higher than it would be in Russia. But let's not talk about the fact that they're fighting for freedom as if they have so much freedom in the Ukraine because they don't. Look, I pulled up the Heritage Fund's Index of Economic Freedom. And of course, this was before the war. So things are even less free now, probably in both Russia and the Ukraine, than they were before the war. But just taking a snapshot, this is the most recent index of economic freedom. And of course, at the top of that index is Singapore at number one, Switzerland number two, Ireland number three, New Zealand number four, Luxembourg number five, Taiwan number six, and Estonia, what do you know about that, is number seven. Now, one thing you'll notice is absent from the top seven, and that's the category that's considered free, is the United States. The United States is in the second category, which is mostly free, and we rank 25th. We're one notch below the United Kingdom, which is 24th. Now, if you want to find where Russia is, you have to go to the category of mostly unfree because you have to skip the category of moderately free, which begins with Japan at number 35 and ends with Senegal at number 88. You get into the category of mostly unfree and the number one nation there is Ghana at number 89. So to find Russia, you have to scroll all the way down to 113. So there are 112 nations where there is more freedom than there is in Russia. Russia is one notch below South Africa on that list. Now, where is Ukraine? Because the way people are talking, you would expect the Ukraine to be way above Russia, but it's not. The Ukraine is below Russia. The Ukraine ranks 130 on that index in the mostly unfree category. It's right below Guyana, which is at 129. So in other words, there is less freedom today in the Ukraine than there was in Russia. So it's not really freedom that they're fighting for. It's sovereignty, it's independence, but let's not pretend that the Ukraine is some bastion of economic freedom. It's not. In fact, the Ukraine, I think, per capita, is the poorest country in Europe. And generally, when you have a lot of poverty, it's because you don't have a lot of freedom. It's because governments are the main reason that you have poverty. When you have big government, then you have lots of poverty. And that is a problem in the Ukraine. And in fact, it's also a very corrupt country. I don't know if it's corrupt as Russia, but you can look at these indexes of corruption and the Ukraine ranks very high in that index. So there's not a lot of freedom. There is a lot of corruption. So it's not a paradise. I'm not justifying the Russian invasion. Russia is definitely in the wrong invading the Ukraine. Ukraine has the moral high ground and I am rooting for the Ukrainians to prevail. But of course, I'm also rooting for the conflict to come to an end as quickly as possible. Because I think the worst part of what's going on is that people are dying. People are dying unnecessarily. I just want it to end. I don't know how much worse the typical Ukrainian's life might be to the extent that there was more control coming from Russia. I don't think the standard of living would be much different. There is this desire not to be pushed around and to be independent and to have your nation. And so I get it from that perspective. But I think the consequences for economic freedom and living standards are really not that great, regardless of the outcome of this conflict. The key is the longer it progresses, the longer the conflict exists, that is the problem. Because more lives will be lost, more property will be destroyed. And so that 
I think is the worst thing, not how it ends up being resolved or what the compromise ends up being, but how long it takes before a compromise is arrived at and how many lives are lost and how much property is destroyed. And in fact, more evidence of basically maybe President Biden's really lack of appreciation between the difference between Russia and the Ukraine when it comes to their economies. There was some talk about kicking Russia out of the G20. And Biden said in a press conference said he gave from the NATO headquarters in Brussels that he supports kicking Russia out of the G20. Russia ranks 11th, at least if you look at the ranking of countries by GDP prior to the invasion. Obviously, Russia might be lower now, especially if you look at the exchange rate of the ruble. But prior to the invasion, Russia had the world's 11th largest economy by GDP. Ukraine, by example, has the nation's 55th largest economy. At least it did prior to the invasion. It was one notch below Kazakhstan. So in other words, the Ukraine's economy is very small, right? If it's 55th in the world. Yet what Biden said was that if we can't kick Russia out of the G20, we should at least invite the Ukraine in. Now, the words he used was they should be invited in as an observer, but why? What does the Ukraine have to do with the G20 when it's down at number 55? Why have the Ukraine in there when there are 35 other nations that have economies larger than the Ukraine that wouldn't be included? It makes no sense. Again, what I think Biden is trying to do is to get Americans to be far more supportive of this war and America's efforts to aid the Ukrainians and the Ukrainian cause because Biden wants to be able to blame all the problems on our need to come to the aid of the Ukraine and the need of all the nations of the world to remain united and that any negative consequences that we ultimately suffer in the economy whether it's inflation or whatever happens on the bad side, well, this is just a cost that we have to bear. It's a sacrifice we have to make for this noble cause of Ukrainian freedom, even though the problems that we're going to experience are not related to that. Certainly, the Ukrainian situation makes things worse. I mean, on the margin, things are worse as a result. But absent anything happening with Ukraine and Russia, inflation would still be a problem. The economy would still be a problem. It would still be getting worse, except they wouldn't be able to blame it on Russia and the Ukraine. They would have to keep blaming it on COVID. But the problem is that excuse may not work in the 2022 election. It certainly won't work in the 2024 election. So they needed to come up with something else and this thing dropped down like manna from heaven, which is why they're making the most of it. Remember, never let a crisis go to waste. Washington is going to milk this for all that it can. Although there was one comment at the press conference where I have finally agree with something that Biden said because he was asked the stupidest question that might have ever been asked by anybody at a press conference. And it was from an ABC reporter. I don't remember her name, but her question was, she asked President Biden if it was a mistake that he ruled out World War III too quickly, that he may have emboldened Putin by letting him know right away that he was not going to risk World War III in order to stop the invasion of Ukraine. So in other words, this reporter thought that Biden might have taken World War III off the table too quickly and we should have left everything on the table in order to preserve Ukrainian independence. And I thought that was about the stupidest comment I've ever heard. And at least Biden responded with a short answer, no, because why would Biden want nuclear war, World War III on the table? I don't want World War III on a table. I don't want it anywhere near the table. I don't want it in the same room as the table. I don't want it in the same house. I mean, I don't want Putin to think that that is an option. Why would you want that? Why would you want World War III to be on the table? Because anything that's on the table, maybe it comes into play. I want to make sure that everybody agrees that it's not on the table. Yes, 
I agree with the Ukraine. I'm sympathetic to their cause. I hope they prevail. But you know what? I'm not going to risk World War III to make it happen. Ukrainian independence is not a worthy enough cause to risk World War III. I don't even think the Ukrainians themselves think it's worth it. Because a lot of Ukrainians might end up being nuked in World War III. And I don't think they want that blood on their hands for all the rest of the world that would get nuked in a world war. I mean, it is nutty to try to say that Biden made a mistake in not letting Putin know that, yes, we were willing to go to war. We were willing to have a third world war. I mean, what does this lady think? World wars are like QE. Hey, we had World War I. We had World War II. Hey, let's have World War III. No, we don't want to have World War III. We want to do everything we possibly can to avoid World War III. And if that means that the Ukrainians end up being ruled by Russians, well, sorry, Ukraine. That's what's going to have to happen because we're not going to fight a world war to maintain Ukrainian independence, especially because, as I said, the lives of the typical Ukrainian are not going to be that much different, I don't think, regardless of the outcome. But the lives of everybody would be dramatically different if we had World War III. In fact, if we have World War III, everyone loses. The Ukrainians don't win if this becomes World War III. Nobody wins. So what idiot would want to have World War III on the table? Well, a member of the U.S. press. That's the idiot. These are the people that are out there asking these questions at these press conferences. Of course, these are the reporters that are allowed to ask questions probably at the Federal Reserve press conferences. That's the mentality of some of these people. They would never have somebody like me asking politicians or central bankers any real questions because nobody wants the public to know the real answers. (music) 